Well, good morning. It's uh, fun to have all the kids up here, and uh, it's uh, just a really joy to, to hear them. And I know if you're a parent and your child had your back to the, uh, you know, to everyone here, that's okay. You know, <laughs> ours did the same thing. Um, I'm going to go ahead and uh, pray for us together, and we're going to get into the God's Word. Uh, Father, thank you for this time here together. Pray that your name would be declared great among us. You are boundless, eternal, everlasting, omnipotent, omnipresent, holy. As the psalmist said, where can we go from your spirit? Where can we flee from your presence? If we go up to the heavens, you are there. If we make our bed in the depths, you are there. If we rise in the wings of the dawn, if we settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide, your right hand will hold us fast. Father, you are our God, we are your people, your church, your children. We ask that you would quiet our hearts this morning so that we may hear what you have to say to us through your Holy Spirit. We're thankful for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, and we gather here in his name, thankful for Jesus' birth 2,000 years ago. Just as you shone a light in Galilee, we pray that you would shine a light in the dark places in our community and in our hearts. We pray for your blessing on those who need healing today, on those who need you to work a miracle in their lives, in their marriage, on parents with children, those struggling with finances. You know what we need, and we trust in you. But now as we seek you in your word, we, uh, we pray, and we trust you, and we listen to you in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, today is the uh, third Sunday of Advent, as you heard, and as we, we lit the candle here, and does anybody remember the other two candles that we lit prior to the, the joy candle here? Anybody? Hope. Hope was one of them, and faith. Hope and faith. Uh, so we, we lit the hope candle, we lit the faith candle, and, and uh, now today we lit the joy candle. And with each of these, we've been kind of coming to Scripture, looking at a particular topic and seeing what Scripture has to say to us, and in particular through the eyes of the, of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And so uh, if you remember, we actually came up with a definition for hope and for faith. Um, and uh, hope is the... Does anybody remember it? Hope is the... Confident, expect. Oh wait, got it right there. Oh, we'll just read it with me together here. Hope is the confident, faithful expectation of what God will do in the future. And the second, faith is a confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. That second one is from Hebrews eleven one, and we can think of hope as the future aspect of our faith. Hope is what we faithfully expect to happen, and we want to live our lives with great expectation, trusting God. Well, what is joy? Joy is actually a little bit more difficult than hope and faith in some ways. Uh, it's a little more elusive, and, uh, but we're going to ask the question, what is Christian joy, and how do we get some? So uh, whenever we have a question these days, um, what do we do? We Google it. So, okay, so let's, let's take a look and see what Google has to say here. Uh, we came up with uh, Christian joy. The next one here is Christian joy is gladness not based on circumstance. That's what the first entry in Google said 
What do you think? Is that right or not right? Maybe sort of, kind of. Like on a, let's just do this. On a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the highest, what would you, how would you kind of rate that? You know, is it 6, okay, 6? All right. So, so it, it, it's got some redeeming characters to it, but it, it maybe misses a little bit here. Um, so if, if we were not going to go to Google and we had a theological questions, what would we do next? Ask a, ask a theologian. Yeah, ask... Uh, hopefully a pastor that's a theologian. Um, so we're going to, uh, <laughs> and theology, let's just demystify this. Theology is just the study of God. So um, we should all, we are all theologians. We all believe something about God. Uh, just uh, do we actually know who the one that we believe in is? So if we're going to ask uh, a trusted theologian, how about John Piper? We'll ask Piper what he has to say here. He's, yeah, it's pretty good, uh, reasonable uh, person to ask. So, John Piper, Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the Word and in the world. Like, do you have to be so wordy? Um, okay, let's break this down. It's a good feeling in the soul, right? And uh, it, it is produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty in Christ in two places, in the Word and in the world. So uh, that seems like a pretty... So what will you give this one on a scale of 1 to 10? You know, is it a, do we hit the, hit the bell or is it somewhere between there? Anybody want to venture a number here? 8, 9, something like that? Okay, we're, we're getting closer here. Um, so this definition, is the definition complete? Well, I, I kind of... I kind of wonder, is this definition complete, and, and is, it, uh, is, it, is it something that's attainable we can understand? Well, uh, we're going to ask one more person, and uh, this, is, uh, this is the, um, it, it's always good to ask a dead guy or a dead woman something, because you know how their life turned out. You know, sometimes we, we read about people in the paper that, we, that are alive, and we're like, oh gosh, I really, really had high respect for that person. But C.S. Lewis finished his life well. So we're going to go and talk about C.S. Lewis and see what he had to say about joy, and even wrote a book, Surprised by Joy. And uh, so I'm going to give you a quote, not from that book, but, uh, but this is what C.S. Lewis has to do, say, about joy, and these definitions are getting progressively longer here. Um, real joy, it seems to me, is almost as unlike security or prosperity as it is unlike agony. It jumps under one's ribs and tickles down one's back and makes one forget meals and keeps one delightedly sleepless at nights, and shocks one awake when others put one to sleep. And my private table is that one second of joy is worth 12 hours of pleasure. I think you really quite agree with me, do you? Um, I doubt whether anyone who has tasted it would ever, if both were in his power, exchange it for all the pleasures in the world, but then joy is never in our power, and pleasure often is. So Lewis contrasts Joy with pleasure. It says pleasure is often attainable. We can seek after it and we can get it. Even illicit pleasures. But we can get all sorts of pleasures. Joy is harder and more difficult to attain. And joy was actually part of C.S. Lewis's experience in coming to Christ. He was surprised by joy peeking through his life at various times. And, uh, and that eventually led him to and a relationship with Christ. So, three different thoughts on joy. Um, 
from these three different sources. It might be independent of circumstances. Uh, it might be a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit in the Word and in the world. And then uh, finally, that it, it's, uh, it might be of infinite value, but uh, very difficult to obtain by actually pursuing joy. So now... We're going to call our fourth witness, who is the prophet Isaiah, who lived 700 some odd years before the time of Christ. And, uh, and so Isaiah didn't see Christ as clearly as we do in the New Testament and other sources, but he looked forward with anticipation to what God was revealing to him about Jesus. And he wrote a long book. Anybody know how many chapters in Isaiah? There's 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. It's a long book and has a lot of different things in it. And we're coming to it with a question of what is Christian joy? As, as, we look for, as Isaiah looked forward to the time of Christ, what's joy? Now, you got to remember, Isaiah's whole ministry was to proclaim the word of the Lord to a people who would not listen, who would not see, and who would not respond to, with their hearts. So this seems like a very joyless ministry, and yet that's what he was called to, and he did speak of joy. So the two passages that we read, Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, Isaiah 35, 1 through 10, present two different images, two different joyful images for us to consider. The first one is a light in the darkness. The second one is a highway in the desert. We're going to call this the great light and the holy highway. And uh, just ask of these passages, what is Christian joy? Can we identify it? So to remind us, as we come upon this passage in Isaiah 9, it didn't just occur in a vacuum. Some things happened before this. And so Isaiah was, in Isaiah 6, he was in the throne room and he saw a vision of the, of the Lord with the, the hem of the Lord's garment was filling the throne room and the seraphim burning attendants were yelling out, uh, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory, and as they were uh, saying these words, the, the, the temple was shaking and it was filled with smoke. And uh, in this context, Isaiah realized his, sinful, um, his sinfulness. He realized he was a man of unclean lips, of a people of unclean lips, and, and he was just undone. And one of the seraphim, one of these burning attendants of God, one of these bright angels, came and brought a burning coal to Isaiah, said, your sin is atoned for that you don't need to worry now. And we said uh, this last week that uh, we believe that burning coal was, in some sense, uh, signified Christ. But in any event, after Isaiah's sin was atoned for, um, the Lord said, I have a ministry here. I have a, I have a message to present to the people. Who will I send? And Isaiah said, send me, send me. And the very next scene, we see Isaiah with the king Ahaz, who was unresponsive, um, to what Isaiah is telling him to do. And Isaiah tells this, uh, this bad king, uh, if you do not stand in your faith, you will not stand at all. Well, the situation goes from bad to worse. It gets, it gets pretty grim. And, and uh, Isaiah, when, when he was presented with this vision of the Lord, had said, how long do I have to do this before things will change? And, uh, and God said, until the cities are ruined until everything is decimated, until the, if you present an image of a forest, until it's all stumps, that's how long. Everything's going to burn it to the ground. And yet, there'll be life in all of that. 
Well, the people uh, continue to not listen. And in fact, as things get worse and worse, they're consulting mediums, they're consulting the dead on behalf of the living. And, uh, and then that's when we hit Isaiah 9. So it only makes sense in that context. Things are going from bad to worse. It doesn't look good. And then in Isaiah 9, it says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea and beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And so the, um, the situation's growing from bad to worse, and politically and historically what's taking place is the Assyrians are coming in, they end up wiping out the, the northern city, uh, or the, the northern um, country of Israel. So King Ahaz was worried about two other uh, uh, political rulers. Well, uh, the one was the king of Israel. He got wiped out. The other ruler got wiped out. And the Assyrians are the big problem. And the Assyrians are a problem for Judah as well. And then <clears throat> things get um, a little better with the Assyrians diminishing. The Babylonians come in and kind of finish the task. And the, and the Judeans are, are, are moved off and, and exiled and Jerusalem destroyed, all those sorts of things. So as we're looking into this context, where does this light make sense? Do only the Old Testament kings fulfill this vision of this light coming in here? Is, is uh, Hezekiah or Josiah or one of, one of these kings? And it just doesn't make any sense that one of these kings could be fulfilling this, this prophecy. And, uh, and so when, when we look at this, we see something else as Christians. We see Jesus. In uh, Matthew 4.16, after John the Baptist had been put in prison, Jesus moved his ministry headquarters to what city in Galilee? Anybody? Where was Jesus' ministry headquarters, Christians? Starts with a C. Yes! Excellent. Capernaum. Yeah. So Jesus' ministry headquarters, you should know this, is in Capernaum in Galilee. And in Galilee was where this light was supposed to shine. And so uh, in Matthew 4.16, um, it says Jesus moved his, or after he moved his ministry headquarters to Capernaum in Galilee, uh, it said it was in fulfillment of this prophecy that the people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned, was quoting Isaiah, and then from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So Jesus was the one promised by the prophet. That's what, that's what Matthew's saying. This prophecy that may have had a, an immediate fulfillment through Isaiah, but its long-term fulfillment is made through Jesus. And if you want to know who Jesus was, um, we have descriptions here. Uh, a child would be born, a son given. His name would be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
And in place of sadness and gloom, there would be joy. There's going to be joy in the place of sadness and gloom. Now, um, there are a couple different images that are given here and the kind of joy that would be, uh, take place. Uh, in um, Isaiah uh, 9, verse 3, it says, You've enlarged the nation, you've increased the joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. So after all this work, the harvest finally comes in and there's joy. And as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder, as the day of Midian's defeat, you've shattered the yoke that burdens them. So people who've been enslaved, the bar across their shoulder, the rod of the oppressor, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, fuel for the fire. In other words, the battle's over, the victory's won, you are not enslaved anymore, and even the clothing of war is going to be burned and unnecessary anymore because it's been absolute victory and peace is at hand. And it's at that point that we have the description of the source of this peace. The source of this peace and this joy is this child that's going to be born, which we read about in the book of Matthew. Now, so if we, if we look at this in comparison with the other definitions we had, so the, the first one said joy is not circumstantial. What do you think? Yes, no, it's kind of not circumstantial, but it's kind of circumstantial. I mean, it kind of, you know, kind of, it's kind of a, I think it's kind of a yes and no. I mean, is it circumstantial? Well, they're receiving joy as this Messiah comes. There's some kind of circumstances taking place, and yet, um, yet it's not highly dependent. You can't get from here to there. And then um, the next one was, um, well, uh, C.S. Lewis said it's elusive, and then um, Piper said it's, uh, the source is the Holy Spirit, that it's a good feeling in the soul. Good, it's a good emotion in the soul uh, that results from the work of the Holy Spirit and the Word in the world. What do you think? Yes? No? I think it's a little closer. Yeah, we're, we're getting there. Well, let's take a look at this uh, second image here. So that was the, the light and the darkness. The second image is from Isaiah 35. So this is after everybody's already been uh, taken captive. They're, um, they are, uh, I mean, terrible things have happened and the city's been destroyed and burned and they've been taken captive. Loved ones have been killed. And just, you know, all the bad stuff that could happen has happened already. And, uh, and, and the people are uh, in, a, in a, it'd be like us being removed from here, moved to some other place. Let's, uh, let's use uh, Northern Canada as an example because that would be not nice right now. Um, but uh, if, 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 if we were moved somewhere, uh, not our home, and we long to go back, and this is what Isaiah is speaking into. Isaiah 35 presents this image of a desert that's out there. Now, um, for us, we don't really... Have we, when's the last time you've seen a desert come into bloom? Anybody? You know, maybe a, a couple of you. But, uh, but it's not a normal thing for us. But we've certainly seen the snow thaw and the ice thaw and all of a sudden the spring comes out and all the stuff we've been waiting for actually happens and it presents just a good feeling in our hearts, at least for me, I, I love that. But, uh, but that's, that's the image that's taking place here. The desert is going to bloom. After the long winter, after the long summer, after whatever it is that, that keeps that spring from coming, 
There's going to be green. It's going to be beautiful. There's going to be flowers in the desert. And uh, in Isaiah 35, 3, the people's hands are trembling. Their knees are knocking with fear. They have anxious hearts that are only calmed with the fact that God will come and save them from their enemies and bring salvation. And so I have the word encouraged up here, and I think that's a really, really good word for us to remember. Um, Encouragement, to encourage, is to impart courage to someone else. In this case, God is imparting courage, um, and and people are um, experiencing that courage. Their knees are not going to knock. Their hands are not going to tremble because of the courage that God's going to impart. But I think as Christians, we are also agents of imparting courage courage. We are agents of encouragement. We can give words of life to other people um, that are not dishonest and untrue. There are words that are actually true, but we can speak life into someone's circumstances and encourage their heart. Well, this is going to take place for the people here. And um, in, in verse uh, 5, so this is 35, verse 5, says, then Will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped? What was Isaiah's ministry? It was to speak to people whose eyes were not open. Their ears were stopped up. Then the lame will leap like a deer. The mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness. Streams in the desert. Burning sand will become a pool. The thirsty ground, bubbly springs. The haunts where jackals once lay. Grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. So the people's hearts are encouraged by signs of life. So the life is taking place in the desert, and the life is taking place inside of them. Their ears are able to hear, their eyes are able to see, their hearts are softening. God is doing a work not only in the desert, but God's doing a work in their hearts as well. Previously, they'd been unable to hear God's message, but now they could hear God's message. And so we have a highway that occurs a highway will be there called the way of holiness. This is in 35.8. It will be, um, for those who walk on that way, the unclean will not journey. Wicked fools will not go about it. We thank the God for that. Um, no lion will be there, no ravenous beast. Only the redeemed will walk on that highway. It will be a way of holiness. And in those, uh, the, the, uh, those that the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. So this is, this is sort of a heavenly highway and, and a highway to heaven. And it says, gladness and joy will overtake them. Gladness and joy will catch up to them and overcome them. And sighing will flee away. It's a picture of an eternal place where there's no sorrow, no tears, everlasting joy. Uh, joy and gladness overtake them. And, uh, and so this is the second image that's presented to us. As the people enter this highway of holiness, and as they see the desert blooming, as their eyes are opened, as their ears are opened, as their hearts are softened, they experience life and they experience joy, and the most joy they're going to experience is when they reach their destination. Um, If we take those same questions and say, well, is it circumstantial? 
Is joy circumstantial here? What circumstance or what occasion does joy occur in? It's being on the heavenly highway and it's reaching heaven, right? And, uh, and if we're to, to look at this, is it a deep feeling in the soul? I'm sure that that's probably true as the Holy Spirit's uh, working. Um, and uh, is it through the word and the world? Um, is C.S. Lewis right where it's, it's elusive? It's not something you can pursue, but it's something that, that occurs on the road to something else. Um, I think that... Um, I want to just give you my understanding of joy. Uh, because this, I, I just warn you, this is uh, Cabot's uh, definition of joy or thoughts on joy. I, I think that, um, that um, they, they might provoke you, though, to think a little bit more. I think that Christian joy is a little bit like uh, general and special revelation or common and specific grace. In other words, God shines his light on the good and the bad. He sends his rain on, on those who do evil and those who are just. God um, helps us to understand who he is. His fingerprints are on creation. All people can see that, and so they're without excuse. That God reveals himself, and there are certain times um, when we experience joy as that takes place, but there's a more specific kind of revelation that, and a more specific kind of joy that is deeper and stronger. So the question is, do unbelievers, people that are not Christians, experience joy? What do you think? Yes or no? Yeah, I think most of us would say, yes, there's joy. Um, well, how is that? Well, if, if God is the source of joy, and God made our earth, and he gives common grace to everyone. Um, his fingerprints are on us, on the world. On, and, and so I think especially as we interact with other people or as we see God's work in nature, we can experience joy. It's sort of a common grace to all of us. And that's a joy that anyone can experience, but the source is still God himself or as Piper wants to be more specific, the Holy Spirit. Um, so there's a common sort of joy. And yet, there's a more specific sort of joy. So what C.S. Lewis said is that um, as, as he was pursuing joy, he never found it. He pursued pleasure, he pursued all sorts of things, and he was trying to find this thing that... that tickles under the ribs and keeps one sleepless at night, and all the, all the descriptors that he was saying there, he was looking for that and seeking after that and could never find it. It was elusive. The more you chase it, the harder it is to find. And then what he came to understand is that joy was actually a byproduct of something else. Joy was a byproduct of his faith and his hope and his trust in God. And so Christian joy is sort of like being on that road, being on that highway through the desert. Um, as you enter that road, and the more fully you embrace it, the more God opens your eyes and opens your ears and softens your heart, you experience that joy. And when you reach the final destination, that's the greatest joy possible, where sorrow is wiped away. 
But in the meantime, we experience sort of fits and starts of joy, and, and uh, it's not always steady, but, but we experience it more as we press in to our Christian faith because Christ's ministry was not just to, you know, we always say as, as Christians, what did Christ do? Well, Christ came to save us from our sin. How did Christ do that? Well, he came by um, dying on a cross. And what did Christ do when he died on a cross? He, uh, our sins were nailed, our debts were nailed there with him. We no longer bear that guilt. We no longer have that shame. And so we're, we're renewed because of that. Uh, but there's something else that's further than that. And Christ came to do all those things so that our relationship with God could be repaired and restored. And our broken relationship with God is the thing that keeps us from having that joy. So as our relationship is broken, we have an inhibitor, a joy inhibitor that's in place. But as it's restored and as we press into our faith, we experience joy more fully. At least that's what C.S. Lewis would have said that that joy actually became a byproduct of a right relationship with God. And so as he became increasingly strong in his faith, joy came too. And, and he said, you know, after a while, I didn't, start, I didn't keep on working on joy. It wasn't what I sought. Didn't worry whether I had joy or didn't have joy. But my, my relationship, my hope in Christ and my faith and as I pursued those things, joy came along too. Well, there's one other little piece in the puzzle, and that is uh, we've, we used Hebrews 11 as a definition for, um, for faith. And, uh, and then after Hebrews 11, there's a whole list of saints who didn't get everything they hoped for by the time they died. And yet... They kept on pursuing it, knowing that they were on the road to holiness that leads to heaven. And so at the end of all that, in um, Hebrews 12, verse 1, says, Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and I might add, keeps us from joy, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus had joy, and the joy was set before him, and he knew that the greatest amount of joy he could possibly have is being reunited with God the Father. But he didn't pursue joy, he pursued God. He pursued being united by God. And, and his, his ministry, his working ministry, was to die on a cross. And yet he experienced joy even through the difficulty of that because he knew what was set before him. Well, I think as Christians, as we're, as we're seeking to um, sort of find our joy, our Christian joy, we need to think of it in these terms. I have it up in front of you here. The, the uh, presence of God is the source of joy deep in our souls. It's God's own presence. Jesus has made that possible. And when we give our lives over to Jesus, that relationship gets repaired. And then joy may be found on the highway home. 
that you and I can find joy as we head home to our heavenly home. And when we get there, that's the most joy we will ever experience. Please bow your heads with me. Father, uh, thank you for your word. We are um, delighted in it. I know that there are some here who've been fighting for joy. That uh, earthly struggles have made joy difficult. But I pray, Lord, that you would increase our vision of who you are, our confident expectation. Increase our faith, our assurance of what's hoped for. And as we pursue you in faith and hope, that we would experience your joy. I pray for each man, woman, and child here that you would bless them and let them walk with you on that road. In Jesus' name, amen.